Welcome to the LA Public Health Podcast for Friday, May 29th, 2020. I'm Steve Baldwin, and today's briefing includes comments from LA County Board of Supervisors Chair Catherine Berger, followed by an update on COVID-19 led by Dr. Barbara Ferrer, Director of the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast for the first couple of weeks. In addition to the COVID-19 press briefings, soon we'll be featuring interviews and other content. So to catch every episode, be sure to subscribe to the show in your podcast app and follow our department across all social media at LA Public Health. And now, Supervisor Barger. Thank you. Good afternoon and thank you for joining us today. I'm Supervisor Catherine Barger, Chair of the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors. We've had a busy week moving LA County further into the next stages of recovery. Our Board of Supervisors voted to seek a variance from the state to align with the majority of the other counties in California. Today, we got word that Governor Newsom approved the variance, allowing barber shops, hair salons, and restaurants to reopen. This further brings our communities together and resumes to resume a sense of normalcy representing a monumental progress for Los Angeles County on the path toward recovery. I am grateful to our state and local partners for their collaboration in helping us transition to be safer at work and safer in our communities. Additionally, on Tuesday, the Department of Public Health announced it was aligning the health orders with the states, which enabled us to reopen in-person shopping. All retail businesses can allow customers inside a shop at 50% capacity with safety guidelines in place. This is a significant step toward revitalizing our economy, particularly supporting our local businesses who often rely on foot traffic and thrive because of in-store shopping. Drive-in theaters, flea markets, and swap meets can reopen, as well as HOA and apartment pools. Additionally, We've reopened places of worship at 25% capacity with a maximum of 100 attendees. This is a meaningful way to reunite our communities of faith by restoring hope and providing a sense of unity and getting back to normal. With safety as our top priority, we are eager to bolster more businesses and reunify our community. As we work towards these goals, the, Cal- the county's Economic Resiliency Task Force has gone, and gone above and beyond and done an incredible job to serve the industries most in need of support. There are 13 sector leaders providing pro bono to develop plans to open many diverse sectors that are vital to the county's economy. This upcoming Tuesday, four of our 13 task force representatives will deliver their roadmaps to safely reopen some key sectors, including restaurants, sports venues, theme parks, corporate businesses, and manufacturing, and film and digital media. Thanks to our industry leaders from these four sectors for their incredible work. Jeff Schell of NBC Universal, Casey Wasserman of the LA Olympic Organizing Committee, Patrick Neiman of Ernest & Young, and Jerry uh, Greenberg of Sugarfish Restaurants. Their report, Their reports are made with input from industry representatives, labor, and the Department of Public Health to ensure industries can hit the ground running with proper public health guidelines. And I emphasize with proper public health guidelines as soon as the state gives approval to reopen. These plans provide guidance for immediate reopening 
and a framework for the return to the new normal. Specifically, Mr. Jerry Greenberg has been working hard and working hand-in-hand -hand with public health teams to identify uh, through safety guidelines for restaurants. We are proud that members of the food industry and public health experts have all had to buy in. These guidelines, which will be published later today, will include best practices for spacing between patrons, using barriers, optimizing capacity, and other recommendations that ensure restaurants can open safely and quickly. Finally, as industries reopen and residents return to their workplaces, we must stress the importance of care and development of our children. This week, the Los Angeles County Office of Education released their planning framework for the school year. These guidelines from Superintendent Dr. Deborah Gerardo will ensure safe learning for students and teachers across the 80 diverse school districts throughout the county. These include safe distancing in classrooms and hallways, frequent cleaning and disinfecting, and continually wearing face masks. Our goal is to identify safe ways to return to the classroom in the fall. The current framework offers three options for learning. Face-to-face -face with fewer students per classroom, continued distance learning, or a hybrid of the two. In our schools, LA County will ensure continued services for students in need, including food programs and mental health care. As we discuss plans for the next school year, we cannot forget about the immediate needs of parents who are returning to work, who rely on summer camps, nonprofits, and other public school programs for childcare during the summer. The county is collaborating with our partners to ensure safe in-person youth programs are available. In every area of Los Angeles County, businesses, workplaces, schools, and recreational areas, we are committed to ensuring the health and the well-being of our residents. Each person's dedication to their neighborhoods, while we, we were safer at home, will make us safer at work and, yes, safer in our communities. Now I would like to invite Dr. Barbara Ferrer, Director of the Department of Public Health, to give the daily count. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you so much, Supervisor Barger, and to the entire Board of Supervisors. We greatly appreciate the continued leadership as we move through L.A. County's recovery journey. And to update you today on our current status, I'm sad to report 50 additional people have died from COVID-19. 33 of the people who died are over the age of 65, and 30 people over the age of 65 who passed away had underlying health conditions. 13 people who died are between the ages of 41 and 65, and seven of the people in this age group had underlying health conditions. Four people who died uh, were between the ages of 18 and 40, and three people in this age group had underlying health conditions. This does bring the total number of deaths in LA County from the pandemic to 2,290. And with so many people in our community experiencing loss and sorrow during the pandemic, we extend our condolences and prayers for peace. 93% of the people who passed away from COVID-19 did have underlying health conditions. And this number really has not changed over the past two months. So as many people are out and about uh, with the reopenings, I wanna urge those who have underlying health conditions to continue to stay home as much as possible. 
and please avoid contact uh, with others. Uh, and if you have mild symptoms, uh, this is an urgent time for you to call your healthcare provider. If you need help finding a provider, please call 211. Uh, today, we're also reporting an additional new uh, 1,824 cases. Uh, this larger number of cases does include a backlog of about 500 cases that we received yesterday from one lab. This does bring the total number of people who have tested positive for COVID-19 in LA County to 51,562. The 51,562 total cases we're reporting include 1,741 total cases reported by the City of Long Beach and 911 total cases reported by the City of Pasadena. We're also reporting 393 confirmed cases among people experiencing homelessness. 191 people who were sheltered were appropriately isolated and their close contacts have been quarantined. There are 6,430 people who tested positive for COVID-19 and at some point during their illness needed hospitalization. This is now 12% of all of our cases. And as you've noted, this number has also steadily declined over the past two weeks. There are currently 1,462 people who tested positive for COVID-19 and are hospitalized. 27% of the people hospitalized are in the ICU and 20% of the people hospitalized are on ventilators. And every day we also continue to see slight decreases in the number of people in our hospitals. We have investigated a total of 498 residential congregate settings and non-residential settings with at least one confirmed or suspect case of COVID-19. Of these, we currently have 449 ongoing investigations and there are 49 investigations that have closed. The settings do include nursing homes, assisted living facilities, shelters, treatment centers, supportive living, correctional facilities, workplaces, food and retail, and educational settings. The total number of confirmed cases in institutional settings has risen to 12,302 cases, and this includes 7,884 residents and 4,418 staff. We're also sad to report that 1,222 people who were living in institutional settings have died from COVID-19. 89% of the people who lived in institutional settings and passed away were residents in our skilled nursing facilities. And for all of you who lost a loved one who lived in one of these facilities, our hearts and prayers go out to you. And while we've seen a continued decrease uh, in deaths over the last two weeks at the skilled nursing facilities, we do know we have significant work ahead. We're also reporting 836 confirmed cases at some point in jail facilities, 622 among people who are, incarcer are incarcerated, and 214 among staff. The Sheriff's Office is reporting for their facilities that today there are 148 people who are incarcerated and have tested positive for COVID-19, 474 people who are incarcerated and have recovered, 220 people who are incarcerated and in isolation, and 5,576 people who are incarcerated and quarantined. There are 176 cases in the state prison, 
127 among people who are incarcerated, and 49 among staff. And there are 749 cases in the federal prison facilities, 735 among people who are incarcerated, and 14 among staff. We're now reporting 25 cases in the juvenile facilities, 10 among youth, and 15 among staff. As always, you can find updated information on uh, confirmed cases at the facilities, as well as our dashboard uh, with testing information, case and death information, and information about our recovery metrics. This is on our website at publichealth.lacounty.gov. The LA County Sheriff Department is reporting 267 positive cases among staff, 356 staff are quarantined, and 1,497 staff have returned to work. The LA County Fire Department is reporting that 346 staff members have been tested for COVID-19, 29 staff have tested positive, 10 are isolated in their homes, 27 have returned to work, and three are home and sick. Thank you very much, Sheriff Villanueva and Chief Osby, for sharing this information with us every day. There are now over 564,000 COVID-19 test results for individuals that have been reported to the LA County Department of Public Health, and 8% of people who were tested were positive. I want to again thank the Department of Health Services and Dr. Galley for making tremendous strides in increasing our capacity to test people who needed testing across all of our communities. And as a reminder, I need to encourage the labs that are processing the COVID-19 tests to immediately report their results to us. This is required by law. This information is needed for the public health team to do their contact tracing, and it's very important in helping us protect everybody here in LA County. There are appointments that are still available at the regional testing site, so please Go on the website, covid19.lacounty.gov testing to find a testing site and make an appointment. I do have an update today on the race, ethnicity, and income level data we are collecting and tracking very closely to better understand how COVID-19 is disproportionately affecting some groups. For the 2,112 people who have passed away where race and ethnicity data is identified, 40% are Latino, are Latino Latinx, 29% are white, 17% are Asians, 12% are African Americans, 1% are Native Hawaiians or Pacific Islanders, and 1% identified with another race or ethnicity. To better understand what these numbers mean, we analyze them as rates per 100,000 people for each of these groups. This allows us to better make comparisons across the population. And these are the numbers that help reveal which groups are disproportionately affected. The death rate among Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders, while the actual numbers of deaths are small, is 108 deaths per 100,000 people. And for African Americans, the death rate is 28 deaths per 100,000 people. For the people who are identifying as Latino and Latinx, the death rate is 25 per 100,000 people. For people who are Asian, the rate of death is 18 people per 100,000. And for whites, the death rate is 14 deaths per 100,000. Uh, when you look at the data by community levels of poverty, you also see disproportionality. People who live in areas with high rates of poverty 
have almost four times the rate of deaths from COVID-19, 46 per 100,000 people, compared with communities with very low poverty levels, where the death rate is 12 deaths per 100,000 people. The disproportionality is alarming and growing, and we must address the complex issues around these inequities with our partner departments, organizations, and communities. We do continue to uh, work closely with the Department of Health Services and our partner community organizations to make sure that there's improved access to testing in the communities that have historically uh, not had such high rates of testing. And we're very grateful, particularly for the work being done by the Department of Health Services to increase this capacity. In collaboration with our partners, we're also creating in-language and culturally appropriate communications that uh, give accurate information, connect people to appropriate resources, and acknowledge the barriers some communities face, both in being tested and being well-connected to care and support services. We do continue to prioritize the health and safety of workers, uh, and we're working with businesses to make sure that workplaces are as safe as possible for employees and customers, particularly now as more and more employees are returning to work. We do encourage all of our businesses to go to our website for the directives that they need to follow in order to reopen their businesses as safe as possible. Employees need help from all of us uh, so that they can be safe as they get back to work during our recovery journey. One thing we have learned is that the disproportionality uh, really reflects uh, who's working and in what jobs people are working um, and does not in any way indicate uh, whether or not people are adhering to uh, the social distancing and, and uh, uh, infection control protocols. This is really who's more out and about uh, and who has been more out and about uh, in the communities uh, doing essential work and now uh, back working in all of our other uh, businesses that are reopening. As Supervisor Barger mentioned this week, we submitted an application to the state for a variance, and the variance has been granted. And this does allow LA County to move through stage two of the state's four-stage pandemic roadmap at an accelerated rate um, that's reflected in the local health officer order. I do wanna thank uh, all of our state partners uh, who worked with us uh, to get to this point in terms of completing the variance process. Um, but I do wanna note um, that uh, the only reason we were able to successfully submit a variance was because of all the work everyone has done throughout our county. Uh, we do ask businesses to please adhere to the directives that are included in the health officer order and to the protocols prior to reopening. Compliance with the protocols is required. Uh, reopening as safely as possible and in ways that protect both employees uh, and customers will require a lot of effort and we do appreciate everyone's commitment to doing this right. Our environmental health inspectors will continue to be out and about uh, providing technical assistance and inspecting places uh, to make sure that people have the information they need to be in compliance with the health officer order and the protocols. Uh, they, they are there to be helpful, uh, so when they visit you, if you're in a place of business, uh, please let them know uh, what services and support you need from us. Um, as a reminder, the actions that we take today affect what we'll see in terms of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths several weeks from now. 
So as we reopen, we remain uh, uh, carefully monitoring the recovery dashboard, and we ask you to do the same so we can see how our reopening uh, continues to allow us to slow the spread. And as we, re as we enter the weekend and we're out of our homes and visiting uh, many of the reopened establishments uh, because we're all uh, really hungering for some return to normalcy, I want to just note uh, that uh, the new normal uh, that, that you're going to see reflected in the businesses uh, reflects the fact that COVID-19 is still very active in our communities. And there's a great deal at stake in the reopening. Uh, while many people do not know anyone who has been infected with COVID-19, and they don't know anybody who may have passed away or who had a loved one who passed away, there are thousands of other people across our community who are positive for COVID-19, who have been or are right now very ill. Many people have passed away, and there are many people who are mourning the loss of their loved ones. So it's important to understand uh, that we all need to do our part as we go through our recovery journey to take care of each other. Practicing physical distancing and wearing a cloth face covering when you are out and around other people is what we absolutely have to offer each other uh, in order to protect ourselves from this virus. I know for businesses, uh, there's a lot of uh, hope uh, as we move uh, through these recovery phases. And we join you uh, in being very hopeful uh, and being very uh, glad to have partnered with you so that we are able to get to this point. But we do, again, want to note that the actions we take now are essential to, be, to making sure that people don't become seriously ill, we don't overwhelm our hospitals, and we save people's lives. It's never been more important as individuals, businesses, and institutions to use the tools that we have available to take care of each other and to continue to slow the spread of COVID-19. And now I want to introduce Dr. Christina Galley, the Director of the Department of Health Services. Hi, good afternoon, everybody. As we come together in Los Angeles County and continue to chart the path forward toward recovery, I will provide a brief update today on the hospital demand projections that we review weekly and also a brief update on testing. First, the predictive modeling effort that the Department of Health Services leads for the county. As always, the slides are available on the county's COVID website as well as on the DHS website if you'd like to review them. At this time, it is still too early to see if there's been any increase in the transmission rate as a result of relaxing the safer at home health officer orders. This is because of the amount of time that it takes for people to develop symptoms and need to seek medical care. We will still need to wait a couple of more weeks to see if there is increase in cases because of the recent relaxation in the orders. That said, if we do see an uptick in cases in a couple of weeks from now, it will likely mean that there has already been two to four weeks of increasing transmission by that time. So at this point, we could be in the midst of a new upward curve or transmission may not have increased at all. We just don't know yet. Preventing transmission will require our continued work on all of the same things we've talked about to this point. The consistent use of the tried and true public health measures that you all are familiar with, washing your hands, the use of masks or cloth face coverings, physical distancing, it's these basic measures as well as others that will ensure we can overcome this pandemic together. 
The good news is that in terms of data regarding the demand for our hospital system from COVID patients and cases, the overall trend is that we're seeing in the model continues to be in line with what we've reported previously. The number of new cases is still flat or trending slightly downward. That said, we are also seeing at the same time the need for non-COVID hospital care start to increase. We believe this is happening for two reasons. First, this is a good thing. People are using the emergency departments when they need them. As I've reported on previously, we had seen emergency departments decline to levels that made us feel concerned that people were not seeking emergency level services when they had a true medical emergency. We're starting now to see those volumes start to increase, and because of that, people are seeking and needing hospital care, and so those non-COVID cases are starting to go up. And the second factor, is that hospitals are beginning to schedule more procedures and surgeries that they had previously put on hold in the setting of an anticipated surge in COVID patients. I want to encourage people to seek emergency services if you're having a medical or psychiatric emergencies. Hospitals are safe, they are able to care for you, they have available beds, and we want you to use their resources for the sake of your life and the quality of your life if you need them. At the same time, I wanna also encourage the hospital community to be careful with how quickly they're restarting elective procedures and surgeries and how quickly this is ramping up. All hospitals should be aware of and following the Department of Public Health guidance that has been put out about restarting procedures. There is still a need to be able to maintain the capacity to surge for COVID patients if the need comes in the coming weeks and as the situation continues to evolve. One of the key mechanisms guiding our recovery is also the accessibility of testing and free testing for all who need to be tested. We are now transitioning a few months into this pandemic from an early emergency response phase to a sustained response phase that we will need to maintain over time. The drive-through sites were initially established across the county as a public health emergency response while the supply chain constraints and testing supplies were severely constrained and we were working to mitigate them. These sites were designed to be temporary and established for easy access and efficient testing while there was a concern of rapid spread of COVID-19. We are fortunate now that many, not all, but many of the testing supply constraints have been mitigated and reimbursement, reimbursement pathways have been set up so that the established healthcare system can begin to take on gradually the enhanced capacity to secure testing supplies for their patients and receive payment for performing those tests so that tests can still continue to be made accessible to patients for free with no co-payment as required by law. Over the coming weeks and months, the community testing model will naturally evolve to be more embedded in this established health system. The County Department of Public Health will provide additional guidance as to who needs to be tested, along with guidance from the state and the Centers for Disease Control. Those public health bodies should be looked to for the continued evolution about who needs to be tested and who should proactively seek out testing. The Department of Health Services will continue to provide support and technical assistance to providers who are ramping up testing capacity as it is slowly transitioned into this established health system. 
In making this shift, the Department of Health Services, which operates four hospitals and a number of community clinics in the public sector, will also be ramping up our own testing sites for patients who rely on the county for care or who are uninsured or who don't have a provider. We will also be ramping up efforts to do education, outreach, and support of low-income and at-risk communities, including communities of color and among individuals with preferred languages other than English. We are all deeply saddened by the data that shows that these populations are suffering disproportionately from the virus. And we know this is a variety of reasons behind this. Staying at home isn't always as easy for certain individuals. Physical distancing is harder to do in some communities. The rates of underlying health conditions are higher, both because of social determinants of health, as well as long-standing structural challenges with how individuals and communities are able to access care within the established health system. Ultimately, this health system-centered model is better for patients and better for our community. It is important that after testing positive, a patient has follow-up care and a medical plan from a healthcare provider. Drive-through sites provide important test results, but those, design, those test results are designed to inform treatment. And treatment is what happens day in and day out in our healthcare system across the county, whether it's within a clinic, within a primary care provider in the community, within a DHS clinic. I want to extend my thanks also to the federal government as well as to the state for having provided funding in the various COVID-related packages and providing the regulations that can protect reimbursement streams for COVID testing so that providers have the chance to ramp up this capacity in a way that maintains the free testing access to all patients. As we seek to embed the testing within our healthcare system. We're working to also increase the number of access points. This is really important for making sure that people can easily access testing in a way that is easy and convenient for them, that takes into account transportation challenges and individuals that don't have a car, that takes into account all of the different ways in which people would normally access care. The growing involvement from the retail pharmacy community will also help with this, such as the recent announcement by CVS to begin offering testing at a number of sites across Southern California, including in Los Angeles County. During this transition, we will absolutely maintain as many drive-through test sites as possible. A few we know will be closing, and those will be posted on the website as soon as we know and are aware. In these cases, it's happening because sites need their space back when we're in the midst of reopening, and they need to be able to provide that space for the reopening of services. And in some cases, the dedicated healthcare workers that have put in time in staffing these test, these test sites need to return to their regular duties as also healthcare services are restarted across the county. The map of the COVID testing on the COVID testing website will remain updated with the various government operated sites at which patients can access tests. We will also post the sites that are offered by community clinics in some cases if they're willing to post those. Though of course, please keep in mind that the number of sites at which patients can access testing will include a broad, far broader number than what is posted on that website. It includes a number of community clinics, urgent cares, private physician offices. So I encourage patients to contact their provider, their provider network, their plan, to understand what additional options might be available to them. 
for those who don't have access to health care. The Department of Health Services, as well as private community clinics, will continue to offer access to testing for everyone who needs a test, regardless of immigration status, the ability of an individual to, for, to pay, and again, these tests are free, and regardless of insurance coverage. If someone needs a test, it will be accessible. As another option, I would just like to remind people that they can also contact 211 for information about how to get connected with a provider if they aren't familiar with how to contact one through the DHS or the community clinic network. If you're interested in learning more about the numbers behind the LA County's community testing effort, DHS has posted a new dashboard that will be updated weekly on the county's COVID testing page. The dashboard provides information about community testing, including volumes and utilization numbers, some demographic information, and more. The dashboard, as I mentioned, is found on the community testing, uh, COVID testing website and will continue to uh, add additional metrics as they become available. I know that summer is upon us and it feels like it's not quite summer in the same way that we're all used to. And many of us are struggling with loss or with economic hardships, but I wanna to continue to offer my encouragement and my thanks for everything that people are doing to stem the transmission of this virus. And I wish everyone well. With that, I'll turn it over to Lori for questions. And ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask a question, please press one then followed by zero. And our first question comes from Patrick Healy from NBC4. Your line is open. Please go ahead. Thank you very much. Uh, wondering if uh, the doctors could walk us through what this variance permits to open and whether inspections or anything else will be required before these business establishments can open their doors to the public. Thank you. So I'm going to let Dr. Ferrer answer that question. Uh, thanks so much, Patrick. Um, there are no inspections that are required uh, before reopening. Uh, we've asked that everybody look at our protocols. There will be posted on the website that everybody adhere to the protocols, but there's not an inspection that's required. Uh, if you need help, you know, definitely call on us. We're here to be helpful. So if you've got any confusions or you have questions, uh, when the restaurant uh, in-dining protocols are posted, you'll see, you know, thanks to uh, many of the businesses, we were able to actually post some diagrams that actually give really good examples of how to accomplish some distancing uh, in the smaller spaces. Uh, but we're hoping that the protocols are really a good tool for the restaurants to use. And, you know, this is, um, you know, this is like the honor system because we're all in this together. So uh, as, as much as we all cooperate and help each other and do the right thing, uh, we save lives. And uh, we have a lot of confidence uh, in our businesses uh, that they're eager to do this in a way that's safe for their employees, that's safe for their customers. Um, so please, uh, you know, you can reopen without an inspection. We just ask that you download the protocols, you complete the checklist, uh, and you do your very best to uh, create as an, an environment that can be as safe as possible. Uh, we'll take the next question. And our next question comes from Claudia Ishuda from KNX 1070 News Radio. Please go ahead. Thank you. Um, uh, so I have just a quick clarification from the last question. Um, some restaurants are getting ready to reopen tonight. Will they technically be able to do that? And then my question is, I, I still don't understand why after staying on April 24th that everyone at the nursing homes would be tested 
The county then allowed those with no known cases to do just a small sample of residents. You, Barbara, you've described that as a wise move. That doesn't make sense to me, given the high numbers of cases and deaths at nursing homes. And what you've said about asymptomatic spread and the fact that workers are the most likely to bring in the virus. So what motivated that change? And did the cost of testing thousands of people at these facilities have something to do with it? Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Claudia. So let me just clarify on when can um, a, a business reopen that's really, at this point, it's our, our restaurants for in-service, uh, in-person dining and our hair salons and barbershops. You can reopen as soon as you can adhere to the protocols. And if you've got that all in place already and you want to reopen tonight, our health officer order will be posted, you know, very shortly. Uh, and that's the authority you need. I do ask everyone, make sure you've downloaded those protocols and that you're able to implement them. But if you can operate uh, under the directives, then yes, uh, this order goes into effect uh, today. So as soon as, as soon as we're able to post it, it goes into effect. So uh, that should happen quickly. And then your, um, your second question on the nursing homes, you know, thanks Claudia for giving us an opportunity to explain uh, what the thinking was. I, the first thing I wanna reassure people is that it had absolutely nothing to do with resources in terms of test kits. Uh, I wanna again thank Dr. Galley and her team. Uh, we have ample test kits. Uh, the process of testing is, is somewhat cumbersome uh, in a facility. Uh, where the facility can't do it themselves. Uh, it required, there are three shifts in facilities. It may take a while to get through all the shifts, particularly if we have to bring in a staff from the Department of Public Health to help with the testing. So one reason it took longer was just the mechanics of getting everyone tested. Uh, when we began the testing uh, in the facilities, there was no requirement by the state uh, for mandatory testing in facilities where there were no outbreaks. Um, and what we did is we asked those facilities uh, if they could go ahead and do all the testing themselves. Uh, if they were not able to do all of the testing in the facilities that didn't have any positive cases, we suggested that they could try a sampling strategy over a period of weeks. So I don't want anybody to think that everybody wouldn't have gotten tested. It was just you didn't have to test everybody all at once. As soon as you found a positive case in any of those facilities, you then flipped to being an uh, institution that had an outbreak, and that meant that our team was there to make sure that the testing happened more quickly. Um, but I apologize because at this point it's created a lot of confusion, and I want to emphasize that the state on Friday issued a new directive for all of the skilled nursing facilities. It is their obligation for everybody to do baseline testing even if you have no positive cases. We're here again to help make sure that all of the skilled nursing facilities have the capacity to accomplish that baseline testing, even if they don't have any positive cases. Uh, but it is now an obligation uh, for all the licensed skilled nursing facilities to not only do the baseline testing if they have no cases, but there are requirements to do continuous testing uh, depending on what, uh, the what, what you find uh, in that baseline testing uh, in terms of, again, continuing to protect uh, workers and, uh, and residents. And we want to thank the state for stepping in uh, with this requirement uh, that, uh, that now the skilled nursing facilities will have to adhere to. So thank you, and we'll take the next question. The next question comes from Colleen Shelby from the Los Angeles Times. Please go ahead. 
Hi, thanks for taking my questions. Um, I wanted to know, LA Unified put the onus on local health authorities to determine when schools will be safe to reopen, saying that it's up to the local health authorities, not the school districts. Um, and I'm wondering if you can elaborate a bit more on the public health department's response and whether there's a timeline in place for that right now. I know Supervisor Barger touched upon that earlier. Just wondering if you could elaborate a bit. Um, I also wanted to know, um, you know, the governor said earlier that if there's a surge in cases in counties as modifications are lifted, he'll direct health officials to pull back. I'm wondering how long would the county monitor for any significant changes before deciding that the county is more or less in the clear to keep the new modifications in place? So I'm going to let Dr. Perr answer the question on LA Unified, but I know that Dr. Dorado, when she put together the plan, did it in concert with our public health uh, director and people within public health. I think that from my perspective, at least talking to some of the school districts, we wanted to provide guidelines and allow each school district to either take a hybrid of what's recommended and or create um, something based on the guidelines that Dr. Gerardo put together. And I think that was the goal to empower school districts moving forward. But Dr. Uh, Farrar can talk more about um, public health's role on that. But again, you know, LA Unified is the largest school district in LA County. Uh, and we recognize that, and so their challenges are going to be a little different than maybe some of the other school districts, but it was about empowering school districts to create plans based on protocol. So with that, Dr. Farrar. Thank, thank you so much. And, and Supervisor Barger is to give guidance to the school districts as they're doing their planning uh, for what are their options for being able to offer as much safety as possible to both employees and to uh, staff and to, of course, our children. So I think this, that's what the intent is. Of course, we are also waiting uh, to hear from the state. Uh, the state will be also issuing guidance uh, for schools around uh, how they can, in fact, uh, plan for uh, the fall uh, reopening. Um, and I think uh, Dr. Duardo and her team did an excellent job sort of laying out options, uh, all with a very deliberate focus on the need to prepare now so that you can have uh, as safe as possible a reopening this fall. And in terms of the last question, we've been working really closely with the state around uh, defining a set of metrics that we should all be using across every county uh, to mark our progress during recovery. And what the state has agreed to do is they've agreed to actually put up a unified dashboard. And I think that's going to be so helpful to all of us because um, every, every single county has a dashboard. But I think agreeing on a set of metrics that we'll be able to post statewide will, will, will be very helpful. And if, in fact, um, the state determines that uh, there's, a, there's a cause of concern, you know, what they really are doing is they're coming to offer technical support and assistance to us. You know, the first question is, what are the drivers of any sort of uh, increases that we may see in, for example, rates of hospitalizations or rates of deaths? And what are the steps that we're taking to address those challenges? You know, we've always uh, really benefited from an extraordinarily strong partnership with our uh, California Department of Public Health and Dr. Angel, as well as with Dr. Galley, who's the Director of Health and Human Services. And, you know, I, we welcome uh, being able to sort of work together collaboratively to make sure that as a state, we're doing everything we can to keep everybody as safe as possible during a pandemic. Uh, we have time for one more question. And our next question comes from Brian Melly from the Associated Press. Please go ahead. Yeah, hi, Dr. Ferrer. Uh, 
I'm wondering with the police protests over the last few days, do you have some, do you have concerns from a public health standpoint about the spread of COVID-19 during these demonstrations? Um, yeah, thank, thanks so much for the question. I mean, the first thing I want to note is that political protests are allowed uh, and that, in fact, they're, they're written into um, our, our orders. Um, and this was something that, uh, you know, I want to make sure everybody is clear about is that, you know, the ability for people to protest in a peaceful way uh, is, in fact, uh, one of those, one of only two event gatherings that are allowed across the state. Um, we do ask people uh, when they're exercising their right to protest to, again, adhere with the guidance. You know, we, we expect people to be using uh, cloth face coverings to keep their distance from each other as much as possible. And I think, uh, like everybody else, uh, these, this is uh, to be peaceful protests. Um, so our, our concern is just, you know, please, as, as with any other gathering or place that you are where there might be other people, please protect each other, show respect for each other by putting on that that cloth face covering so that uh, your respiratory droplets aren't uh, unintentionally uh, getting into somebody else's uh, mouth, nose, or eyes. Um, so, so that's what we would uh, ask everybody to do uh, in these, you know, again, for, for the weeks to come as we move through recovery, uh, that's going to be essential. Uh, and now we'll have our remarks in Spanish. And for those people that would like to ask a question or simply make a comment or a remark, in Spanish, please press one, then followed by zero. Muy buenas tardes a todos. Um, gracias a la supervisora Barger y a toda la junta de supervisores. Ustedes continúan guiándonos a través del viaje de recuperación del condado de Los Ángeles con concentración y consideración. Para actualizarlos, nos entristece informar que 50 personas adicionales han fallecido por causa de COVID-19. 33 de estas personas que fallecieron eran mayores de 65 años y 30 personas mayores de 65 años que fallecieron tenían problemas delicados de salud. 13 personas que fallecieron tenían entre 41 a 65 años y de las 7 personas estas padecían de condiciones delicadas de salud. 4 de las personas que fallecieron Tenían entre 18 a 40 años y tres con, tenían condiciones delicadas de salud. Esto lleva un total de fallecimientos de 2,290. Muchas personas en nuestra comunidad están experimentando pérdidas de sus seres queridos y tristeza durante esta pandemia. Pensamos en ustedes y de todo corazón le damos nuestras sinceras condolencias. El 93% de las personas que fallecieron por causa de COVID-19 tenían condiciones delicadas de salud. Dado a que muchos de nuestros condados están fuera de sus hogares eh, ahora más que antes, es muy importante que las personas con condiciones delicadas de salud continúen en casa tanto como les sea posible. Continúen evitando el contacto cercano con otras personas y si tienen síntomas leves, eh, por favor, com comuníquese con su médico de inmediato. Y si no tiene un médico y necesita un doctor, por favor, llame al 211 y le darán información sobre los proveedores de salud médica en su comunidad. Los casos. Hoy estamos reportando 1,824 nuevos casos. Este número mayor de casos incluye una acumulación de aproximadamente 
500 casos que recibimos de un laboratorio. Esto eleva el número total de personas que dieron positivo para COVID-19 en el condado de Los Ángeles a 51,562. El total de 51,562 casos que estamos reportando incluye 1,741 casos totales reportados en la ciudad de Long Beach y 911 casos totales reportados en la ciudad de Pasadena. This episode of LA Public Health was produced by the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. Our department is nationally accredited by the Public Health Accreditation Board and is committed to protecting and improving the health of over 10 million residents in Los Angeles County. For more information about DPH programs and services, visit publichealth.lacounty.gov and follow us on social media at LA Public Health. My name is Steve Baldwin, and you've been listening to the LA Public Health Podcast.